back to FinTech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson. I am the creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter and podcast. And joining me as per usual is my friend and fellow uh, FinTech newsletter writer, Jason Mikula. Jason, how are you? I am doing pretty well, thanks. I uh, survived the uh, European heat wave, uh, despite complete lack of air conditioning. There were some fans around the house, so I uh, did the trick. How are things out in Montana? Oh my gosh, um, we're good. It's, I don't think, quite as hot as it has been in uh, the uh, Netherlands and in Amsterdam, but um, it's definitely getting up there. I didn't realize you didn't have any air conditioning. That's terrible. Yeah, you know, most of Northern Europe does not, uh, historically anyway, experience these kinds of temperatures. And uh, a lot of the infrastructure, the housing stock uh, is old. I mean, my house right. was built over 100 years ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I mean, air conditioning is really, really uncommon in the UK, in Northern Europe. Oh, man. Well, brutal. I am so sorry you had to suffer through that. I... Uh can say from my limited experience, and again, it wasn't too bad in Montana recently, but it definitely got a little hotter. It, it just sucks away all your productivity, it feels like. Like when it's a certain temperature, my brain seemingly just turns off. So anyway, mm -hmm. it's good that we were able to continue to get our newsletters out in uh, reasonably good shape and uh, excited to be breaking down another month of fintech news and headlines as a reminder to everyone what we're going to do is just bounce around a couple of uh, topics that caught our eye things I think that maybe Jason and I haven't spent a ton of time writing about over the last month but were things we definitely wanted to make sure we talked about so Jason I think the first topic is all yours yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as uh, I imagine, most people who listen are probably aware there's been a bit of uh, tumult in the buy now, pay later sector as of late. I mean, I think the sort of biggest story was uh, Klarna's sort of ever shrinking uh, valuation, you know, as it sought to go out and raise additional funds. Uh, and ultimately, it saw its valuation decline from something like 46 billion to I think it was uh, six and a half billion, so something like an 85% decrease or, or down round um, as it did raise new funds. Now, I think something interesting to point out: the um, CEO co-founder uh, on Twitter and also in, in a blog post on Klarna's site was kind of defending uh, the company's valuation, pointing out that public market peers, you know, including Affirm and, and other fintech companies, have seen similar valuation decline. So you know, the big difference here is you know, Klarna is obviously not publicly traded. And so that, that process of price discovery of finding out you know, if valuation multiples have compressed from you know, 20, 25x to something like 5x um, revenue, you know, it takes uh, a negotiation with their investors to sort of find out what is the price that they can then go and sell shares at. The other point he made, which I think bears uh, repeating, is Klarna only sells common shares to investors. Unlike most startups in the US, uh, which sell preferred shares to investors, uh, while giving common shares uh, to employees. And, and that can impact what that sort of headline valuation number is. Um, one additional caveat on that, uh, much of the reporting on Klarna's raise mentioned a point of discussion around whether or not the company would continue its efforts in the US. 
Uh, and based on the announcement, it seems that a good portion of the money raised will go towards continuing to build its franchise in the United States. Uh, a couple of smaller stories in the BNPL space, uh, Zezel and Zip, two BNPL players, uh, abandoned their plans to merge. So they're both kind of smaller players in the BNPL stage that we're looking to uh, team up to gain you know, some kind of scale to compete in the rapidly changing environment. Uh, they have since abandoned that merger. Uh, and OpenPay, which uh, is based in Australia, has quit plans to uh, operate in the US market. So it had announced uh, late last year that it would you know, launch US operations. Uh, and here we are, you know, a handful of months later, and it's already exited the US market to focus on its home, home country of Australia. Uh, I think before we discuss that a bit, did you have one item you wanted to add about uh, BNPL for NFTs, which is just an acronym soup, if we've ever had one? Oh, God, it's like the worst tasting acronym soup of all time <laughs> to me. Um, yeah, so I, I wrote about this in my newsletter uh, recently, but uh, just as both BNPL is getting hammered, as you were describing, and uh, NFT sales and value of NFTs have kind of crashed through the floor, uh, several new services have been introduced uh, roughly at the same time that are providing uh, buy now, pay later, and essentially financing for the purchase of NFTs. And, um, you know, I don't know, man, I, I just makes me want to sort of just sit on the floor and cry. I don't, I don't really know what to say about it. I mean, I think it's sort of the inevitable collision of these two trends that have been going for a while. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really good example of BNPL stretching its way into corners where it really has no business being, I think even, you know, you're starting to see buy now, pay later, uh, make its way into some of the more sort of risk heavy categories that uh, banking and payments have traditionally stayed away from areas like firearms, which I know was a, a big story that was reported in the Wall Street Journal, where there's now a buy now, pay later company actually based out of Bozeman, Montana, much to my dismay, um, that focuses on the firearm industry. Uh, there's uh, some other ones that have popped up recently for cannabis. So I think it's, I guess the point I would make about it is just that buy now, pay later built up so much momentum over the last couple of years that even as some of these headwinds are now kind of slowing it down and pushing back on it, it's still sort of seeping into all of these areas. And I, I think it presents sort of a macro question, which is if we look forward into the future and we think about sort of BNPL, like what is the right size for BNPL? Like what should mm -hmm. it look like when all of the sort of immaturity and hype has been sort of stripped away? Where does it make sense to sit? Where does it not? Because to your point about Klarna and what the, the CEO of Klarna published on Twitter, I actually think he made some good points, right? And I think that I, I'm sort of weirdly bullish on Klarna now that it's really taken a, a huge beating because they did expand very aggressively, but they've established a really good presence in the US. And I think there is a long-term case for BNPL being a part of the mix. It just feels like maybe we're still seeing some of the after effects of all of this sort of rampant enthusiasm the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is also uh, almost BNPL as a brand, if you will. And, and that you know, may or may not be the case with consumers, but I think certainly, you know, for investors and for media, this sort of 
catch-all uh, category tagline became, you know, for lack of a better word, popular. I mean, I was looking uh, recently into the <laughs> B2B BNPL, um, or basically, you know, BNPL for business purchases space. And, and yep. what I found in digging into it a bit was that really it was mostly a rebranding of products that already existed, things like trade finance or invoice factoring, sort of yeah. depending on exactly how it was configured. So it was kind of like, okay, this isn't really a, even a new product for the most part, but you it's could imagine, yeah, you could imagine if you were going out to either raise money from VCs, maybe, maybe not now, but maybe six or 12 months ago, or mm -hmm. you were going to talk to you know, enterprise firms and pitch this, you know, it, it's sort of like a brand that makes it a little bit easier to explain, you know, or I guess maybe it makes it harder to explain, depending on your point of view, what, what the product is. Um, and I think, you know, to your point, you know, perhaps we're going through a bit of a right sizing right now around sort of what are the right product categories to use this for? You know, should you have BNPL for firearms? Should you have BNPL for NFTs? Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, you know, should you have B2B BNPL for cannabis dispensaries? I don't know, maybe. I'm, I'm not super knowledgeable on that sector. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, I think part of what's unfolding right now is this sort of uh, adjustment to determine what are the right product categories uh, and what are the right distribution channels? You know, will BNPL be successful in these new card formats? You know, Klarna is in the process of rolling out a card product in the US, which actually carries a $4 per month fee after the first year. You know, is that something- really? that can... I didn't know that. That's so interesting. It is um, on in invitation only right now, but you can go sign up for the wait list. Um, but is that something that actually, you know, solves a consumer pain point and has product market fit versus other distribution channels? You know, a firm uh, is in the process of developing a decoupled debit card, a firm plus, you know, is that something that has product market fit? And, and you know, I think those questions remain to be answered. But uh, the, the macro scale question is, you know, this category went from, you know, almost zero you know, two, three years ago to every corner of the internet um, very rapidly. And it seems like the, the pullback is a little bit perhaps overdue. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And it's it's a reminder also that the um, the thing always in building companies and in private markets and public markets, it's all about timing, right? I mean, it's so mm -hmm. interesting to look at some of these uh, mergers that are now off. You're looking at Klarna having to make some tough decisions about where to continue to invest, you know, but at the same time, um, you know, Afterpay looks like they got uh, acquired by Square at exactly the right time, right? I mean, that mm -hmm. that went through and that was right kind of at the height of all of this stuff happening. And at the time, I think generally the opinion on that acquisition was really smart move by Square and, you know, really probably fairly fair price for, for Afterpay. And I don't know that I necessarily disagree with that, right? Even though the prices have totally changed, I think there is still a lot of value to Square getting Afterpay mm -hmm. and incorporating that functionality. So it's it's always really hard to judge these things in the absence of the numbers which 
help us kind of ascribe meaning to all this stuff, but at the same time, as you've pointed out, are very arbitrary, right? And are not really based on reality. So I, I am looking forward to seeing how this space sort of shakes out as the, the sort of money and kind of branding attention, as you just pointed out, get kind of pulled back on a bit, which I, I think is largely going to be helpful, right? Like when you have, when you have folks that are, um, in no way knowledgeable about fintech or even financial services, writing about and commenting about buy now, pay later, you know, you've sort of jumped the shark and it's time to kind of pull back. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, I think the, the reactions of companies, startups in the space were not necessarily irrational, right? I mean, I think Klarna is such a fascinating story because it was like a 15 year old company that had actually been profitable, uh, you know, for That's most right. of its recent years. And when the category, the brand BNPL, you know, blew up as we went through the pandemic, I, in my head, I literally imagine like VCs banging down the door, trying to like hand wheelbarrows of cash to the company, because now it, you know, it already has an existing business tech stack product in what all of a sudden became the hottest sector to be in. And if you were well, in- is, This is the, this is the <laughs> SoftBank problem, right? In a nutshell, yeah, yeah, right? Like exactly. SoftBank shows up at your door, they break in, they force feed you piles of cash until you just can't <laughs> take anymore. And, and quite frankly, from like Klarna's perspective, like, and this is the part where I kind of feel bad, they kind of did exactly what their investors asked, right? I mean, they said, take this money and grow as quickly as you can. And I think Klarna's actually been pretty good at- rebranding their business and getting a lot of consumer attention and, you know, coming up with these, you know, celebrity endorsements and marketing campaigns that are designed to drive attention and get people using the Klarna app independent of the merchants that they might've been introduced to through Klarna originally. Like a lot of that was pretty successful money spent. I mean, maybe it was too much money. Maybe it wasn't quite as efficient as it needed to be, but they understood the assignment that they were given by their mm -hmm. investors. It's just that the assignment changed overnight. Well, and, you know, they achieved something that uh, Max Levchin of a firm has stated as his goal or the company's goal repeatedly, which is to become a payment network. I mean, granted, Klarna did that through an acquisition uh, right. of Sofort, which is a European payment network, uh, but that makes uh, a far more diversified offering where you know, there's financing, there's pay now, and they're you know, playing a key role in processing those transactions as opposed to being more dependent on card networks like Visa, MasterCard. So I mean, I think I actually, I agree with, with your statement earlier about, you know, if I had to pick a, a company in the sector that I'm remain bullish on, you know, despite the, the decline in, in price valuation, you know, Klarna would be the one that I would pick. Right, right. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, it's kind of funny, but it's, um, I guess you and I are just always sort of counter cyclical with these things. <laughs> as everyone else is jumping off the BNPL train, you and I are sort of slightly lightly jumping on, at least in certain cases. So no, I, I totally agree with that. Um, should we jump to the next topic, which is also somewhat related? Yes. Why don't you tell us a bit about uh, Tomo and X1? Yes. Okay. So two stories uh, that are fairly recent. Uh, involve uh, fundraising and upcoming product launches for essentially credit cards that you can acquire as a consumer without having to have a credit score. So uh, one is Tomo Credit, 
which raised uh, $22 million uh, Series B fundraising round. And, um, you know, Tomo Credit basically is a uh, credit card that you can get, uh, again, without a credit score. And in order to get it, they look at your uh, cash flow. So you have to connect your um, bank account or bank accounts, and they analyze your cash flow. And then based on essentially the amount of money you have in your checking account and the sort of inflows and outflows, they will assign you a credit limit up to, I believe, $30,000. And um, the interesting thing about the company is that it uh, strongly encourages slash requires customers to uh, make repayments on their uh, credit card purchases on a seven-week uh, schedule, or I'm sorry, a seven-day schedule rather than a 30-day um, schedule. So every week you're making a payment on your Tomo card. If you can't make a payment, then the card is simply frozen. They don't actually allow you to revolve or uh, carry a balance uh, over to the next payment term. And so it's this really interesting sort of flip on the credit card model. And it's um, really kind of a, uh, a focus on how do we help customers build uh, sort of a credit file. They do uh, report your uh, on-time payments to the credit bureaus. They reported in this latest fundraising round that um, their current default rate is at 0.11%, uh, which is an incredibly low default rate. Um, but when you put it in the context of how their product works and the fact that they don't allow you to revolve a balance, it's maybe not quite as surprising. Uh, what was surprising to me about Tomo was that they announced they were going to be, as a part of this sort of growth that they're going through, expanding to focus on more segments of credit invisible consumers, uh, including potentially small businesses, and then also expanding into other product categories like auto loans and mortgages. So um, it's a really interesting uh, product that kind of, again, fits into the same category as another company that just had an announcement that they're getting ready to launch uh, sort of to the general public, which is X1. And uh, X1 brands itself as the smartest credit card ever made. Um, and it's, it's quite an interesting website if you go take a look at it. Um, among other things, one of the things they claim is that they, again, by looking at your cash flow, not your credit score, can set credit limits uh, five times higher than traditional credit cards. Um, that is a statement that I have a very tough time believing if they are referring to just the general credit card market, if they are referring specifically to credit invisible consumers and what they're able to get from traditional credit cards. I think that's probably a little bit more believable, but it's still quite a claim. Um, and if you look at the card, you know, it's a little bit more like a traditional credit card. It allows you to revolve a balance. It has a variable interest rate that they charge on uh, balances that aren't paid back at the end of the month. Um, and they have a lot of sort of smart features built into it, like the ability to do virtual cards, the ability to automatically cancel free trials that you sign up with your card, things that are definitely available from other card issuers, but that they're sort of packaging together as a part of this smartest credit card ever made. And so I think just generally, and Jason, I'd love to get your perspective on this, but this seems to be sort of an increasingly popular category, credit cards that are available to consumers that don't have credit scores. And 
I think it's an interesting category. I've written before about the need for more products for credit and visible consumers that can sort of onboard them into the credit system. So I do think cash flow based underwriting has a role to play in doing that, particularly for credit cards where you can kind of control your risk a little bit more based on the fact that it's revolving, the fact that you're um, able to set sort of manageable credit limits up front. Um, Obviously, Pedal and a few other fintech companies have been doing this for a while, so it's not a new concept by any means, but I guess, what do you make of this sort of sudden surge in popularity in this product category? Yeah, you, did, uh, you didn't mention that the X1 card also touts that it is made from 17 grams of stainless steel, which sounds like it's quite heavy. Um, oh, that's so true. And and on their <laughs> website at the bottom, I forgot about this. This is so important. You can go and see a, a video of the card being dropped on the ground and you can actually listen to the sound of it. And so in like credit card marketing world, this is called the clink effect. Mm, and mm -hmm. it's like how, how heavy, how like durable, how impressive does your card sound? And it sounds like X1 is trying to like win that competition. So I haven't gotten my hands on the actual card yet, but they're, they are putting a lot of eggs in the basket of you've never felt a credit card like this before. I had not heard the term, the clink effect, but that 100% makes sense. Uh, I mean, no, I think being, getting, getting back to the serious discussion. Um, I mean, the, the problem that cash flow underwriting uh, solves is a real one uh, in the sense that, you know, many Americans, you know, thin file, no file, or potentially uh, have a poor credit score, uh, which it's important to distinguish between those two because they are distinct segments, right? So if I think cool. about, you know, talking about, you know, Tomo X1 um, pedal, and I haven't, you know, I haven't gone deep on all, all of these companies and the discrete segments they may be trying to serve, it's a different challenge to say, I am going to figure out how to underwrite a customer that has, has no data on a traditional credit bureau versus trying to underwrite a consumer who has you know, major DROGs on the credit bureau, who basically has a demonstrated record of unwillingness or inability to pay. Um, I mean, something that occurred to me as you were talking through this and the differences between Tomo and X1 is, what is the problem that the product is solving for the consumer? So Tomo, you know, if you're accepting at face value that the consumers is encouraged or required to pay on a seven-day cycle as opposed to a 30-day cycle, you know, it 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 is credit, but it's extremely short duration credit. Mm -hmm. So I mean, if I'm thinking of you know, why might somebody want to use a credit card? If you're a transactor and you can pay your full balance, you know, you're probably using that card for, you know, probably for rewards points, maybe for some other benefits around, you know, protection, chargebacks, um, you know, other, other benefits of using a credit card as opposed to other form of payments. But uh, if you can only, you know, carry that balance for seven days, it's not really credit or it's very, very short duration credit, um, you know, which makes me wonder, you know, the people who are using it, you know, it, it's probably not as much because they need to borrow money for seven days, 
but perhaps because they're looking to build a credit history, which again, you know, that is a real use case. Um, product category already exists for that. Secured cards, um, secured cards historically uh, have not necessarily mm, been in a particularly appealing in their design in the sense they often carry high fees and maybe have extremely low limits, $300, $500, maybe require a deposit. So I guess I'm struggling a little bit with kind of like what bucket, you know, to put Tomo in, in my mental model of, you know, is this an unsecured credit card, which is using cash flow underwriting, kind of, but if you can only carry that balance for seven days and you can't revolve it, then it really starts to feel more kind of like a secured card. And so it's, it's almost, to me, feels like it's somewhere in between the two. Um, you know, with, with X1, uh, and I did read the press release uh, that came out, you know, a week or so ago, it, um, which was notable for the number of superlatives, uh, they it's managed hyperbolic. To... I read that too. Yeah. It, it's interesting. I mean, presumably the press release is not aimed at the consumer audience. If there's one thing I learned as a consumer financial services marketer, it's avoid superlatives because they can be easy to disprove. And then that lands you in UDAP hot waters. Um, hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll give the, the press release writer the benefit of the doubt um, as far as iconic brand, smartest card ever released, most in-demand credit card of all time. Um, seems like quite a strong statement. Uh, <laughs> I do, I do want to respond to one specific thing you mentioned, which was the claim of a, a five times higher credit limit um, yeah. and, and the sort of like nature of cash flow-based underwriting. You know, all, all credit cards incorporate income data uh, as far as being able to determine line assignment, right? So when you're- They're, they're you know, required to, right? It's part of the card. Exactly, yes. So when you're you know, applying for a credit card, whether it's you know, a major institution like Bank of America or Capital One or the X1 card, you know, what they're doing uh, is collecting your typically self-declared income information, which they may or may not validate you know, with, um, you know, some sort of data vendor or having you potentially upload a document. But what they're looking at is, okay, you say your income is X. I can see on the credit bureau, maybe you have a mortgage, maybe you have a car loan, maybe you have student loans. You know, I believe that you can reasonably afford to make payments on a credit line of Y. You know, so, so it's not, you know, it's not that traditional cards and underwriting don't use this information at all. They certainly do uh, as part of underwriting uh, a, a applicant's line assignment. So I would be kind of surprised that a, uh, a card that's only using income-based underwriting could somehow offer uh, a, a line that is five times higher than than average or than others. To your point, I mean, the basis of comparison is important. If it's if it's talking about comparing to the language it uses, by the way, is up to five x higher than traditional credit cards, um, right? Which, which I I find a little bit difficult to believe that that that's true. Um, but perhaps compared to a traditional secured card or a traditional entry level credit card, something like that, that that might might be plausible. Um, yeah, I mean, I but, guess it's, uh, it's like if you if you took and said, hey, um, you know, 
this person who has no credit score, you know, they applied for um, the Chase Sapphire blue card and um, didn't get any credit limit. Their credit limit was zero because they got declined. Well, if you can approve them, then you're going to increase the amount that you're approving them for by, you know, a lot, way more than 5X. And so I, I, I would have to imagine there's some type of creative basis for coming up with that claim yeah. because yeah. your point on its surface, like if we're talking about just regular consumers that are getting approved for traditional credit cards, there's no way. And, and largely it's because he's said they're doing both a combination of ability to pay, which is looking at income and willingness to pay, which is looking at credit scores. And typically the combination there gets you to a higher limit, assuming those signals are positive than you could get just by looking at one of them. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, I think, you know, there are, again, very real segments of consumers that the traditional credit scoring uh, universe uh, kind of ignores, right? And I believe Tomo started with a focus on recent immigrants to the US, which makes sense, right? You've moved from, you know, another country, you don't exist on the major bureaus, you go to apply for something, you are not going to get approved. Uh, I am very sympathetic. When I moved to the UK, I could not even get a postpaid cell phone because I did not exist on the bureaus in the UK. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a very, um, you know, easy to understand use case there. And this is one approach to solving that. There are actually other companies uh, like I believe Nova Credit, which attempt to yep. solve this in a different way with allowing you to sort of port your credit history country to country. But income-based underwriting is is another uh, tool in the toolbox, so to speak. I mean, how much room do you think there are for these kinds of products? How big is the market for something like Tomo or X1? Yeah, I think that's the core question. And it, it gets back to your point about how to segment these different products, right? I mean, I think even though... Tomo and X1 were the two that were sort of in the news recently. I think they are representative of two distinct product categories, right? So X1 to me fits into the category of unsecured credit card for credit invisible consumers, right? And it's mm -hmm. it's very much like Pedal, right? It's a standard credit card, uh, depending on the one you get and the one you qualify for, uh, you can get uh, rewards associated with it. It also comes with interest payments on the back end. It's a, it's a credit card. It's as dangerous as a normal credit card. It's as valuable as a normal credit card. It's just the way they underwrite folks for it uh, specifically takes into account the fact that most of their applicants aren't going to have a credit score and they can manage through that. On Tomo, I think to your point, it's much more similar to secured credit cards or to those new credit builder cards that are being introduced by the Varos and mm -hmm. Chimes of the world, right? Where it's essentially still a secured credit card, but it's marketed in a little bit more of a consumer-friendly way. It's not, I think a big problem banks have had with secured credit cards is they don't really want those customers anyway. And so mm -hmm. you can almost tell through the marketing, like, you're kind of a loser if you apply for this. And I, I think consumers see that and react understandably negatively to that. So I think a big part of it is just making it feel more welcome. One of the things though, that kind of um, concerns me, I think a little bit about the future of the credit builder card specifically, and like how big that market can get and how much room there is, is those products have, I think, existed in somewhat of a gray area from the credit bureau's perspective for a while, mm -hmm. um, because you know secured cards were never really a big focus, and it wasn't you know so big that it was causing a problem. 
But now that we have all of these products and fintech has brought a lot of attention and a lot of applicants to this area, I think a problem that the credit bureaus are wrestling with is some of this data that's getting reported to the bureaus that's helping these folks build their credit scores is not exactly the best data in terms of determining willingness to pay, right? Because to your mm-hmm. point about, oh, just as an example, and Chime and others are similar this way, if they make it really hard slash impossible for you to make a late payment or to miss a payment or to default, if they essentially make that practically impossible, which is a very customer-friendly product feature, it really compromises the quality of the data that's being reported to the bureaus because you don't know as an underwriter, how those folks are going to perform. It looks like from the trade line data, oh, this person had a credit card. Here was their balance. Here's all the history of payments that they've made. And you kind of can't tell just looking at the trade line data what the circumstances of those repayments were. But in the case of these products, the circumstances often are, yeah, they were basically given no choice except to make a payment. And they made the payment and it was very safe and there was no chance they were going to default. And I think that's an area that we might see some changes in, in terms of how the bureaus accept that data, how they treat it, how it gets treated in the credit file, if it gets segmented into a different place, how future versions of the FICO score and Vantage score might treat this data. So I think there's some stuff to be sort of shaken out there over time that might change the overall sort of attractiveness of this product category. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the particularly the Vero and Chime, which seems to be aimed at a different segment than Tomo, but you're essentially prepaying the card. And so there's borderline no way you could really pay late or default, given that your, your spending limit is determined by what you have essentially paid in advance, or you've sort of escrowed in advance. Um, And yeah, the, the, predictiveness of that data or the, you know, can you generalize that to, you know, how would I perform on a car loan, on a mortgage? I'm guessing it probably it's a less predictive um, than, you know, a typical unsecured card. Right, right, exactly. Which is kind of gets to the kind of the core problem, which is, and it goes to your question about how big these companies can get and what the future looks like they're all gonna to wanna to expand into other areas of lending, right? More profitable areas of lending. But I think the core challenge that they're gonna run into is if your base of customers are repaying, in quotes, your uh, credit card that you've offered them, but there's really very little risk that they're not gonna repay, it's a great experience, it helps them build their credit. It probably doesn't make them the most attractive borrowers to then market to and try to get additional loans from, right? I mean, I I constantly Mm -hmm. wonder when Chime is going to roll out additional lending products and how they're going to build out that side of their business. But I would imagine that there's a bit of hesitancy or concern on the part of Chime to get too deeply into lending to their existing customer base because, you know, a, a 690 FICO score Chime credit builder customer might not perform the way that a uh, standard 690 FICO score customer would from a lending perspective. And so wrestling with some of those differences there, I think is going to be a big challenge for a lot of these companies moving forward. And to the degree they can solve for that, I think that will determine how successful they are at kind of expanding beyond just offering these credit building products. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, last last comment on this one, I, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and I mean, in, you know, the short-term lending industry, you know, there was a sort of approach or an idea that, you know, you could de-risk a customer by seeing that that user borrow and repay, you know, small increments. And, you know, you now had data that, that didn't, you know, exist anywhere else. It wasn't on the bureau, it was proprietary. So I can see that on the bureau, this person looks like a 580, but look like they borrowed and repaid from me a bunch of times. So I think they're actually lower risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that may be the case. Uh, but overwhelmingly, you know, in my experience, you know, what was was not the case, right? You you turn around and offer that user uh, an unsecured card, and you know the performance um, tended to look quite a bit different than their re- repayment behavior on a very small, very short duration uh, term loan. Right, absolutely, and that and that's the tie back, by the way, to buy now pay later as well, right? Because yeah. um, I think buy now pay later is taking a similar approach in that they're trying to build these sort of proprietary views into their borrower's creditworthiness and performance. And I think you make a great point that that proprietary data is often less uh, generalizable than you might uh, assume or wish that it was. So it'd be interesting to see how, uh, how all of these different categories of companies that are building these kind of proprietary credit relationships with consumers uh, end up being able to kind of build out their business. Um, but I'll gavel us off there because we've talked plenty on the credit side. Why don't you um, bring up another one? I know we have another couple quick topics to get to. Yeah, so we did have a short bit on uh, Apple facing antitrust scrutiny or lawsuit in this case uh, from a credit union of all places. So as reported in American Banker, a tiny 137 million asset affinity credit union uh, in Des Moines, Iowa, filed an antitrust lawsuit against Apple, uh, basically claiming that their uh, 0.15% charge on credit transactions uh, and 0.05% uh, charge on debit cards that are run through Apple Pay uh, is basically anti-competitive. Uh, because there are no competing mobile wallet offerings available on iOS. Uh, And this isn't the first sort of antitrust case Apple has dealt with in regards to Apple Pay. Um, In the EU, uh, in a slightly different uh, approach, EU antitrust regulators have been pursuing Apple over its Uh, limiting access to the NFC chip, the near-field communications chip uh, embedded in the iPhone, uh, which would be required for competitors to offer uh, a wallet that you could use for tap-to-pay. So a slight slight distinction there, but definitely um, some increasing scrutiny over Apple's, uh, one could argue, anti-competitive behavior when it comes to accessing Apple Pay and the fees it charges, uh, in this case, banks, credit unions, for processing cards that are loaded into Apple Pay. Um, any any hot takes on uh, Apple's behavior uh, when it comes to Apple Pay? Yeah, I mean, my quick take on it is just that I think 
I think on the merits, there's a pretty good case that they're exercising some of their power to get kind of preferred pricing, right? And this was reported when Apple Pay was first kind of rolled out and we kind of got the details on the arrangement. Like they negotiated a very specific arrangement with the card networks and with the banks. And it was based on the fact that, uh, you know, A, Apple is going to be able to drive a lot of volume. So there's a lot of value to uh, participating and kind of partnering with Apple here. And I think there was also some reporting that it also kind of came with an understanding that Apple wouldn't try to build their own sort of competitive payment network uh, <laughs> if they were to kind of get this deal, right? And so, you know, all of those are things that I think are are seen generally, and I'm not a, a um, you know, monopolist uh, uh, lawyer or antitrust lawyer by any means, but I think that in broad strokes, that does look like anti-competitive behavior. And, you know, I guess the thing that strikes me as interesting about this, the EU is different because they have a, I think, a more sort of hardline approach that they take to uh, antitrust than we do in the United States. But here, I think the thing that's really interesting is a lot of banks uh, and card issuers have been grumbling about this deal with Apple for a while and even trying to sort of put pressure on the card networks and pressure on Apple to change the terms of the deal a bit. But the grumbling is always kind of quiet and none of them have gone to the point of like actually, you know, taking Apple to court. Uh, it took a tiny little credit union that probably didn't have a whole bunch to lose, but still technically sort of has standing to complain about this to actually take the step. So I do think it's interesting that sometimes it requires kind of an outsider to sort of do the thing that I think everyone in the industry sort of wishes that you know, someone would do or that is kind of needed, but it takes someone kind of from the outside to, to kind of push it over the edge. So I have absolutely no idea where this will go or how successful they'll be. I think in general, antitrust complaints don't uh, kind of carry the same weight in the US as they used to mm, you know, mm -hmm. 30, 50 years ago. But um, I do think there is an interesting case to be made here. Yeah, I mean, one one lesson might be uh, we shouldn't trust Apple. Let's not forget they promised the Beatles in like 1981 that they would not go into the music business, and <laughs> and, and what what and and pay them eighty thousand dollars to settle a uh, trademark infringement case uh, with the Beatles holding company Apple Corps. Uh, and lo and behold, Apple Computer did enter the music business. So, you know, everybody watch out. Apple eventually is just going to own everything, uh, apparently. It's true. It's absolutely true. <laughs> I mean, you can't trust these trillion-dollar companies. It's it's shocking when you find that out. Um, uh, on, a, on a related note, last story I wanted to touch on real quickly, and it relates to, to trust, is... Um, a report that came from the Wall Street Journal that said that the uh, CFPB is pushing on banks to take more responsibility for fraud that happens with Zelle. So just to sort of recap, um, Zelle, which is uh, offered by about 1,700 financial institutions in the U.S., uh, and is in fact uh, owned and operated by Early Warning Systems, which is itself owned by a consortium of large banks, um, recorded about 1.8 billion transactions in 2021, which uh, totaled about $490 billion. And that is a significant increase over previous years. Really, Zelle was one of the sort of quiet, less discussed winners uh, over the last couple of years and during the pandemic when people really shifted a lot of their behavior over to digital payments uh, for 
sending money to people, for being able to make payments without having to, to get close or have close contacts during COVID. So it's really been a huge beneficiary of that growth, which has, I think, been great for all of the banks that have been participating in Zelle. The challenge, though, that has come with it, and this is uh, not a challenge that's unique to Zelle, it's certainly been true with Venmo and Cash App and other P2P applications as well, but Zelle perhaps even more so, is that it's also seen rampant fraud. And a lot of the fraud that happens in P2P is not um, of a sort of getting your account hacked variety. It's uh, more of a social engineering variety where fraudsters or scammers will essentially trick uh, consumers into authorizing payments. Uh, and there's you can look up a ton of different varieties of this scam, but it's it's incredibly common. And um, this has resulted in major losses by consumers to fraud, most of which are not typically covered by the banks or P2P payment platforms that are providing these services because uh, from a regulatory perspective, they're not required to cover fraud losses that are incurred uh, if the consumer authorizes the payment. And that's kind of the, the hinge upon which a lot of this rests. So the CFPB apparently is going to be working on new guidance that uh, would require banks uh, for certain scams to um, essentially be more responsible for covering some of these payments and um, for investigating them and for compensating losses. And this, I think, this change in the nature of how we define authorized uh, payments could have a, a pretty significant impact on uh, Zelle, on the banks that are participating in Zelle, certainly on Venmo and Cash App as well, as I would imagine over time, and would just sort of change the nature of the relationship, probably making P2P payments a little bit more friction-filled, because I would imagine that all of the services would introduce additional steps and additional precautions before allowing customers to make these payments. And then the only other thing I'll point out that is, I think, a factor as it relates to all of this and makes Zelle sort of particularly sticky on this issue is the real-time payment aspect, right? And so Zelle, unlike uh, Cash App and Venmo for the most part, uh, does when it makes payments, make them in real time, meaning that the money moves instantaneously. And while that is nice for certain use cases like paying your rent the day before that it's due, which is an activity that you see a lot on Zelle, it also comes with the problem that there really is no ability to stop the transfer of funds or to reverse it before it winds up in the other account because the payment literally is made instantaneously and the funds are moved instantaneously. So this has been a, an area that I've been concerned about for a while as it relates to faster payments, which is it's convenient for consumers in certain instances, but it's also enormously valuable for fraudsters. And so, mm -hmm. I don't know, Jason, do you have a quick reaction to, to this news? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the bit in the Zelt story that I found the most interesting uh, was one of the vectors is a so-called uh, me-to-me scam where a, a user will get a phone call from somebody pretending to be their bank yep. and say, you know, your account has been compromised quick. You need to use Zelle and send all your money to your own phone number. Mm -hmm. And what the fraudster has done in the background is link that consumer's actual phone number to a different bank account so that the result is the user believes I'm sending this money to myself because I've just typed in my own phone number. But then what actually happens 
is those funds are being sent to a different bank account that the fraudster controls and has linked with that phone number. Um, and that's like when you when you actually spell that out and think like, okay, you know, if my mom or sister or uncle or whatever got this call, might they like, you know, fall for this scam? I don't know, maybe. Um, sure. And, you know, certainly there are other vectors, uh, you know, in Cash App, Venmo, and Zelle, but that is the one that caught my eye is like, okay, uh, as a financial institution, you know, particularly once you know that this is a fraud vector, you know, it seems like you should have responsibility for coming up with a way to, if not totally solve it, then at least, you know, mitigate this risk. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's my my two cents on that. I, I'm sure we have not heard, you know, the last from regulators from the CFPB when it comes to this. I mean, during the pandemic, there were all sorts of stories, you know, high profile New York Times about people being scammed uh, on Venmo, on Cash App, on Zelle. Uh, so I'm sure we have not seen the last of this. No, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I, I think to your point about um, what banks can do, you know, I mean, uh, what, what, what we've seen overall, just kind of again and again in the financial services industry is when you make fraud the bank's problem, they come up with a way to solve it, right? And sometimes <laughs> their solution, it introduces more friction or it uh, slows things down. But I mean, banks are professional, not losing money companies, right? That's what they do. And so as a general principle, I think that shifting a little bit more of this responsibility onto banks' shoulders or onto the shoulders of whatever platform providers are enabling these transactions will introduce a just flood of innovative ideas all of a sudden for ways that, well, we could actually probably crack down on this, or maybe there are ways to introduce a little bit more friction or to make it slightly harder for these fraudsters to commit these me-to-me -me, uh, attacks where they're tricking consumers. There are ways to address a lot of these things, and nothing's going to be perfectly safe, but I think we'll see a lot of innovation once the liability potentially gets moved around a little bit there. I think that absolutely makes sense. Uh, with that, should we segue to our can't let it go? Yes, let us please do. I know that you have one that um, came out a little while ago, but that you, I think, like bookmarked on Twitter as I'm going to bring this back for can't let it go because you're obsessed with it. So, oh, you man. so I, th I think we've actually talked about this one before. Uh, I'm sure we have, but uh, Axie Infinity, uh, which is a <laughs> play to earn crypto game, uh, notoriously had a, I think it's like $625 million hack a number of months back. Uh, and earlier this month, there was an update uh, which claimed, based on two sources, uh, that the way the hack happened was a employee of uh, the game's owner, Sky Maven, uh, downloaded a PDF that purported to be a job offer uh, from another company, uh, and that PDF enabled the hackers to gain control of the network and and ultimately execute the hack. You know, and, and when <laughs> when I read this, I just you know jaw dropped. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I think the majority of my job when I worked at you know a bank or other non-bank financial companies, there was a whole lot of PDFs going around. Oh, yeah. um, and, you know, if simply downloading a PDF enabled hackers to uh, break into 
JP Morgan Chase or Wells Fargo or Goldman, you know, all of the money would be gone. <laughs> it's just all gone. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the, the, I mean, trying to be serious for a minute, but like, it really brings to light, you know, the questions around like, what were the info security practices here, you know, that allowed this to happen? Um, and I haven't seen any sort of additional details on on the mechanics of how that worked, but I just I just could not believe the attack vector to steal six hundred and twenty five million dollars was somebody downloading a PDF. No, it's so true, right? I mean, I I think that's a great way of framing it. Is just that like the behavior on the part of the individual is it like perfect? No but it's pretty understandable, right? I mean, I think all of us have downloaded a PDF from someone we weren't totally sure we knew exactly who they were, or, or you know, we've fallen for one of those emails that your company sends out to kind of test your ability to catch phishing attempts and you fail. Like, I mean, that, that happens. The difference is in the traditional finance world, that happens and nothing super bad tends to happen, right? Like one computer is compromised, one employee gets uh, lectured and made to take security training again. Maybe there's some sort of minor consequences, but for the most part, nothing super bad happens. You're certainly not breaking into the vault and stealing $600 million. But in crypto, because everything moves fast and you know it's much faster, it's much more important to get to scale and get user adoption and get the token economics running. All of these other things get sort of brushed aside for the sake of expediency and this is what happens when that happens yeah so i mean i guess uh maybe i'm gonna guess the lesson was not learned for other crypto companies actually um no, I would say that's that's probably sadly true and actually brings me to one of two can't let it go topics that i have um so i'll go through mine very quickly but the first one and it, this one is very sad actually is um the Celsius bankruptcy. Um, so as we've discussed on this podcast before, um, Celsius uh, is one of those sort of crypto lenders, quote unquote, that turns out was doing tons of irresponsible things and has essentially lost uh, a large portion of their users' funds. They've declared bankruptcy, they're going through bankruptcy proceedings. And as a part of the bankruptcy proceedings, uh, Celsius customers are able to write letters to the judge presiding over the bankruptcy. And the, the letters are really sad, honestly, because um, they all are written by folks who are, you know, putting their life savings into Celsius or trying to save up for their kids to go to college, or there are veterans that are taking all of the money that they've saved up and are, are trying to earn enough money to be able to, to kind of afford whatever their sort of financial dream is. So just tons and tons of very sad stories. There was one element to a lot of the stories that I wanted to highlight, and this is the can't let it go part for me, which is many of them talked in great detail about Celsius itself and about uh, the research that they had done into Celsius, the research they had done into Alex Mashinsky, who was the, the founder and CEO of Celsius. And they referenced a lot of kind of due diligence that they did. They watched videos that Alex Mashinsky was putting out, kind of talking about the platform and how safe all of their funds were. Apparently at a previous time, he was doing uh, weekly Ask Me Anything sessions online where he would answer user questions and try to reassure the community. And they were very actively participating in all of those. And so, you know, to me, I guess the thing that strikes me as interesting and somewhat unique here is, 
you know, when folks lost money through their pensions uh, during like the housing crisis in 2008, that one seemed to me to be very much a failure of the sort of financial system and infrastructure that sat behind a lot of these systems, right? It was pension fund managers and the different investment companies they were working with that were making mistakes. And, you know, the users, there's not really an expectation that you're going to double check the math for the person who's managing your pension fund. Your, your money goes in there and you sort of trust that's what's going to happen. In this particular case, um, these were consumers that were going way out of their way, way beyond pensions or other things to try to earn a higher return. And while I think it's fairly easy to say, and I'm sympathetic to the argument that, you know, these consumers should have known better and there's no such thing as a free lunch. And, you know, of course, these returns were not sustainable. Why would they be? I get all of that. And I'm sympathetic to that argument. At the same time, I also think we should note that these consumers weren't just taking it on blind faith, looking at the website and going, yep, I'm just going to put all my money here. They were trying to do due diligence. Now, obviously, Alex Mashinsky and Celsius were lying. And so there's a limit to what you can do unless you're just willing to kind of take someone's word for it. But as it relates to discussions about accredited investors and how much we should be enabling regular consumers to go out and try to earn wealth, I think these bankruptcy letters paint an important picture as to the risks and benefits associated with that. Because even when consumers try to take more responsibility for vetting these investments, there's a limit to what they can do. And I, I think that's an important consideration as we move forward. Did you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I also saw a, uh, a handful of those letters and, and um, actually had recently listened to a couple of good podcasts on related topics. One episode of Odd Lots that had Jason Calacanis and also an episode of The Daily specifically about Celsius. You know, and something that um, Calacanis, who's like a very famous angel investor, um, for those of you who might not be aware, said was something along the lines of, you know, these people knew what they were getting into. And he was yeah. talking both about investing in SPAC deals, mm -hmm. uh, as well as in crypto. And I think, you know, the Celsius case kind of mm, undermines that argument in, in the sense that, you know, if, if the information you are getting is just not true, is yeah. either incomplete or inaccurate, then you can be doing, you know, quote unquote, due diligence uh, and still be getting defrauded, right? And, yeah. you know, I think the, the Celsius case is a very extreme example and unfortunately one that negatively impacted, you know, a lot of real retail people who, who put, you know, their life savings there or their down payment for a house or what have you. You know, but even, even in the SPAC case, it's like, you know, there were, there were a lot of... Uh, SPAC investor decks with very fast and loose projections on how those companies would perform. And so if yeah. you're a, you're an average investor and you're doing your due diligence and reading that deck and taking it at face value, you might think, oh, okay, you know, revenue is going up and to the right. It's going to double in two years and double again. And, and, you know, lo and behold, you know, pretty much none of those companies fulfill their projections. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it you know, uh, this is kind of like, why we have regulations, right? It is. Well, it, it, it just, I'm so fascinated by the rules around accredited investing in particular, right? Because 
there's been a lot of criticism of those rules. You have to have this amount of income or you have to pass these very sort of onerous tests about uh, sort of investment literacy before you're able to, uh, you know, participate as an investor in the private market. But I think these letters and uh, this sort of evidence and even SPACs to your point sort of paint the opposite picture, which is that putting up gates that prevent everyone from piling into these markets is probably at some degree an important thing to do because, you know, were there ways to sort of suss out that Celsius was not on the level? Sure. Was it sort of intuitively something that didn't make sense? Yes. But there are plenty of people who go against their intuition when they're desperate to get a good return. They're trying to get a good return. And to your point, they do a decent amount of due diligence, but they're being lied to, right? And I think it's those types of cases where, you know, these accreditation rules, even though they might be a little clunky or they might be a little unfair, they do keep a lot of people out who might otherwise end up getting hurt. And so I think it's just worth thinking about the trade-offs around a lot of these things because SPACs and uh, crypto are two examples where we sort of did an end run around these traditional rules and requirements and a lot of people got hurt. And I don't know that that was really worth it in the end. So I think that's something we should just continue to keep in mind. The last thing I wanted to just mention before we sign off is, um, again, sad news. Sorry to bum everyone out with my, my uh, can't let it goes, but um, Hawk, the founder and CEO of Visa, uh, passed away recently uh, at the age of 93. And, you know, he had a very long and interesting life. And, um, you know, I think uh, if you followed him on Twitter towards the end of his life, uh, he had some very entertaining thoughts about life and the meaning of death and philosophy and uh, Twitter's algorithm not giving him as many uh, followers as he thought that he should have. He was just a super entertaining person to kind of follow along. And the more that you dug into his life, the more interesting it became. Obviously, he was sort of the driving force behind the creation of Visa and really the sort of global electronic payment system that we have today. And you know, I think it's worth it for anyone who's in fintech to spend a few minutes kind of doing a deep dive. There's some really great books actually that have been written about the history of Visa and what DHOC's role in it was. And the thing that strikes me as most interesting was that... Um, the global electronic payment system that we have today is not something that probably would have evolved on its own, right? Because it required a enormous amount of coordination and competition between organizations that are naturally very competitive with each other. And if you, you know, took a time machine and went back to the 1970s and looked at how credit cards worked, a lot of those were things that might still be true today in terms of having all of these individual banks issuing their own credit cards, setting up their own little kind of closed loop networks with certain merchants in certain areas. And there really was no obvious reason for them to coordinate. It took a great deal of outside force and pressure and persuasion, a lot of it applied by DHOC, to get them to cooperate to create the system that we have today. And you know, if you read into the history of how he did that, a lot of it was kind of somewhat tricky or underhanded, right? Like he would assemble a very large board of directors at Visa and give them lots of different committees and different things to kind of work on with the goal of having them kind of fight amongst each other so that he and his management team could be left alone to run Visa and make decisions, right? So he had all these sort of tricky ways of kind of forging cooperation out of these 
chaotic environments and kind of became something of an organizational management guru towards the end of his career talking about how to do that. So I think there are a lot of lessons for fintech, even for crypto and Web3 to take from the way that he did that and forged those groups very successfully. So I don't know if you had any thoughts on, on DHawk. I know you followed him on Twitter. Um, you know, I recently read, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the book now, but it was, it was about the MasterCard Visa, you know, duopoly monopoly case, uh, which was for a fintech book club. And it, it had an amazing, like, backstory into the electronic payment networks that, that I did not fully appreciate. So I'm going to have to go out and get a, get a biography of DHawk or uh, the, the backstory of Visa to, to brush up. Yeah, no, he should, and everyone should. He's a he's a fascinating he was a fascinating guy, and um, very much one of the the figures that you would carve on a financial technology Mount Rushmore. Because a lot of what we have today is is due to his persistence and vision. So, um, with that, Jason, um, I will let you get back to your uh, uh, hopefully slightly cooler weather now in the, in the Netherlands. Um, and uh, thank you as always for joining me. Yeah, it is uh, cold and rainy again, so we're back to normal. Uh, until next time. <laughs> until next right. time.